0: We had a men's breakfast recently, and uh, Chris Gromus was addressing the men on the issue of pornography, and he said he came across some statistics that say that um, people who are trafficked end up in porn movies against their will. And there is a major percentage, according to these statistics, that say that if you watch one of those movies you may be watching someone who has been trafficked and forced to be in the movie. And so if you give your money to that industry, or they even keep track of the number of clicks on websites, and so if you click on a website or you watch a movie like that, you may be watching someone who's in sex slavery. So that made all the guys, I think, who were there that morning think a little harder because we know that this is a major problem in our world, and love should move us to do a couple of things, based upon James 1, 26 and 27, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, what Corey just talked about, in their affliction, in their tribulation, and to keep ourselves unstained by this world. This is true and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And I know as we are all being sanctified into the image of Jesus Christ, we are trying more and more. This is what I want to do to get my father's heart. And my heart needs to be replaced with my father's heart. And man, it's a battle sometimes. We all know, right? This world trying to do the right thing and Avoid the wrong thing is where we all battle. But if love for God and love for people dictates your behavior, you won't go wrong. And the love of God and the love for other people are intertwined and inseparable. You cannot say you love God and you don't love people. Now, there are certain days when I feel that way. Lord, can I just love you? Because people are a pain, right? Some days I I feel that way, but God tells me over and over again, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. The two are intertwined. They are inseparable. They are linked together. And so as we love God, think of a cross, as we love him more vertically, as we invest in that love relationship with God, our horizontal relationships take care of themselves. And what, where we're going to go this morning is you and I need to know that on Judgment Day, and by the way, you're going to be judged, not for your sin. The good news is that your sin was dealt with and full at the cross if you're a Christian. But you are going to stand before a Bema seat. And get this, what we're going to learn from James is that the judgment at that Bema seat will be all about how well you loved God and loved others. It's going to be as simple as that. That will be the measure of your reward on that day, is how well did you love? So every day that you're going to live this coming week, if you could just use that measurement as the success of your week, or maybe times when you failed, how well did I love today? That will be it. And you don't have to love on your own. You have the power of God to help you. Now James, moving into chapter 2 after he's challenged us with these three things that we are to help orphans and widows in their distress, we're to keep ourselves unstained by the world, we're to bridle our tongue is the third thing. He goes into chapter 2 with these words, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly, James may be addressing very early Christian assemblies, which uh, the word assembly is the word from which we get synagogue. Christian assemblies were in homes, more probably typically here as James would address a group of Christians who have been dispersed, Jewish Christians. So in all likelihood, they're meeting in homes, but they would call them an assembly. So this is an early church service. This may be one of the earliest addresses to a congregational setting like this where someone would walk in the door, and James is challenging the church not to look at people with favoritism. See, favoritism is the opposite of love. God shows no partiality. Over and over again in the scripture, it says, God does not show partiality, so neither should you. And James Uh, Some of the scholars of the New Testament say he may have been at a church service where he witnessed this occur, where he watched two different people dressed in completely different ways get treated in two different ways. The first man is well-dressed. He comes into the assembly, verse 2, with a gold ring, a sign of wealth. He's dressed in fine clothes, literally bright or shining clothes. And there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit by my footstool. You sit by my futon. You sit near where I put my feet. Now, One of the things that we do in the world, and this is probably maybe most true in Western culture, is that we judge everything by what we see. In fact, Sunday mornings in many places become all about what you're going to wear. And so there are certain assemblies that you go to, in fact, some of you may have grown up in those assemblies where unless you come in in a suit and a dress, you're not acceptable. And so it immediately eliminates a lot of people who don't even have the clothing to come into a place like that. Why in the world would that ever be a measure of somebody coming to a church? A church is supposed to be a place that's a hospital for sinners, not a fashion show. Now, look, we have all a different spectrum of clothing that we wear. Some people are... You know, compelled. They feel like they want to dress up a little bit. Some people dress kind of in the middle. Some people are casual. Frankly, we don't care. Because God doesn't look on the outside. God looks at the heart. And in the ancient world, if you were poor, you were really poor, and you may have had one garment to wear. And because you had one garment to wear, that garment would wear out. And so you would end up looking shabby and dirty because you may not have had a home. You didn't have a whole clo- How many of you have some issues with shoes? How many of you have way too many shoes in your closet? Can I get a witness? Anybody want to confess right now? Confession's good for the soul, right? And then you have those shoe boxes. Why you save the boxes, we don't know. It's a mystery. Some of you need counseling. Anyway. Some of you are ribbing your spouse right now. That's you. He's talking about you. I knew it was a good idea to come to church this morning. (laughs) Some of you need to do the closet cleanse. Oh, we're going through that at my house right now. That's probably why I'm bringing it up. But anyway. (laughs) Now, if you pay special attention to the man that looks good, let's say he's got a Fine suit on a Rolex, and one of the ushers or usherettes in the back says, Oh, come here, man. We'll we'll sit you on the front row. Come on down. And right behind the man in fine clothes is a man who isn't dressed too well, maybe dirty, maybe shabby. And the response is, Oh, you 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 can stand over there. Well, James says in verse four. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? In the church, throughout the history of the church, there's been seasons where the church became very stuffy, very elitist. Have you noticed in reading the New Testament that Jesus spent very little time with the elite of society? He was known as the friend of who? Tax gatherers and sinners, prostitutes, lepers, the poor. And in his own hometown in Nazareth, he opened to the book of Isaiah, and he said, the Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to who? To the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who were in prison. And in other places it says, Those who sat in darkness, when Christ came, they saw a great light, the light of Jesus. He came to bring hope to the hopeless. There's scriptures in the New Testament that, that say that the Pharisees were lovers of money instead of lovers of God. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. They loved the greeting in the marketplace, but they were void of the love of God. And in fact, they looked down on people who were poor, And they concluded that they were under the curse of God. That is so far from God's heart. An elitist mentality is not God's heart. In the 18th century Church of England, it had become so elitist and inhospitable to the common man that in 1739, John Wesley had to take to the cemeteries and to the fields to preach the gospel to the coal miners. They weren't allowed in the church. And there are stories from this era where Wesley is preaching the gospel with the power of God and there are tears running down the face of coal miners, blackened faces, a white streak was left by the power of the gospel. They couldn't even get into these churches to hear the gospel because they had become excluded by their income, by their job, and by their clothing. And the church was a place where it was empty, void of, could have been full of people, but void of the love of God. Arcant Hughes comments, Christian bodies all tend to succeed, calcify, and become elitist. As a woman who lived across the tracks and wanted to join a very fashionable church found out, she talked to the pastor about it, and he suggested that she go home and think about it carefully for a week. At the end of the week, she came back. He said, now, Let's not be hasty. Go home and read your Bible for an hour every day this week. Then come back and tell me if you feel you should join our church. Although she wasn't happy about it, she agreed to do it. The next week she came back, assuring the pastor that she wanted to become a member of the church. In exasperation, he responded, I have one more suggestion. You pray every day this week and ask the Lord if he wants you to come into our fellowship." Well, the pastor did not see the woman for six months. He met her on the street one day and asked her what she had decided. She said, well, I did what you asked me to do. I went home and prayed. And one day while I was praying, the Lord said to me, don't worry about not getting into that church. I've been trying to get into it myself for the last 20 years. (laughs) Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's written to a church. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. It's possible to have something called a church, but it be devoid of the heart of God. If it's not about our Father's business, we ought to just go and do something else. In fact, we could argue that there's been periods of the church where it's been counterproductive to the cause. Because people have looked at that and said, that's the last place I want to go. If anything, we should default to love. Now, this congregation is a beautiful church filled with loving people. And that's it's testimony as you hug each other. And some of you even give holy kisses. (laughs) I have some issues with a holy kiss, but I'm not going to go there. In verse 1, my brethren, church, brothers, sisters, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude. Maybe we should just stop there. Don't have a attitude, man. Don't have an attitude of looking down at others because Jesus said even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Don't do that. Don't, James would say, don't have an elitist attitude. You see, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, some versions, if you have the ESV in New King James, it calls him the Lord of glory. By the way, this is a, this is an indication of his deity. In Psalm 24, this is, this will sound familiar to some of you. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, and God says in Isaiah 48:11, I will not give my glory to another. I won't share my glory. The fact that Jesus is called the Lord of glory means that he is God. And God came down in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord of glory. He left his glory and he came down to earth, born in Bethlehem, growing up in a nowhere town of Nazareth to come and preach rescue and hope to poor people. And it doesn't just have to speak of financially poor. It's people poor in spirit. So I want you to see in the Old Testament, this is the book of Leviticus, go all the way back, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 19, where the heart of this passage comes from, God's heart for the poor, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, just before Numbers, chapter 19, we know Jesus was asked a question about the greatest commandment. And Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, the second of those two, loving your neighbor, is set in a context that's very appropriate to what we're talking about. Leviticus 19, 15. You shall, 19, 15, you shall not, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. Now, we should note that, that it shouldn't go too much in either direction. It doesn't mean that the rich are shut out. It doesn't mean if you're wealthy, you can't come to Christ. But here, it's just saying, don't be a person of partiality. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Uh, Leviticus 19.16. You shall not go out, not go about as a slanderer among your people. We saw that earlier in James. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord, verse 17. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But what's your Bible say? But you shall love your neighbor, as yourself, I am the Lord. Do you see that even the famous verse that we all know, and we might not have known where it was before today, is set in a context of not demonstrating partiality. Now, we all can be partial to certain types of people. But when you come to Jesus Christ, That partiality goes away. We are the body of Christ. We are all one in Christ. The middle wall, the barrier of separation has been torn down by Jesus and he has established peace. There should be no more enmity between us because of social classes or race or where we come from or whatever. Sometimes on football teams, that's okay. That was a joke, sort of. Deuteronomy uh, is to your right. Deuteronomy ten. Just keep flipping pages to your right or just punch it into your handy dandy device. Deuteronomy ten seventeen. The Lord your God is the God of gods ten seventeen of Deuteronomy. And the Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Once again, we see the heart of God that he's not a God of partiality, but he wants justice for the orphan, for the widow, for the alien, and for the poor, as you can see in supplying food and clothing. If you turn back to the book of James, all over the Bible, we see God is not a God of partiality nor does he want his people to be. Proverbs 18.5 says, To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. My my bride is a very real person, straight up. And uh, there's been times when she has been introduced to somebody, and... uh, how you doing is the response. And then when they find out she's the pastor w- pastor's wife, sometimes the response changes. Oh, you're the pastor's wife. Oh. And maybe you've experienced that before where you, you get introduced somehow and you're just, I'll take myself, I'm just Michael, right? But then you get introduced as something and it changes. And we all do this, Right? If we find out someone maybe is in some level of authority, or maybe they have a, a uh, they're on TV or radio. Oh, whoa. are you amazed at what people will do to wait just to see a star, a movie star, walk by? <laughs> <laughs> Seen some of those videos when the Beatles are playing and the girls are. Ah! passing out and stuff. Wow. We we can get enamored with people and their positions, right? But God says, that's not me. I'm not impressed. I'm not partial. In fact, maybe some of the most spiritual people on the planet are people that we could easily pass by and we don't pay much attention to them. When we open the doors of the church, the goal should be the love of Christ. That should be one of our major goals. A certain father always closed his prayer at the evening meal with these words, Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, and bless what thou hast provided. Papa said his little son, Every evening you ask Jesus to come and be our guest, but he never comes. My son replied the father, We can only wait, but we know that he will not despise our invitation. Well then, asked the little fellow, if we expect him to come and have dinner with us, why don't we set a place for him at the table? And to save further embarrassing questions, the father allowed the boy to do so. They set up a place. And just then, a knock came at the door. When they opened it, a poor, helpless, homeless child stood shivering in the cold. The son thought for a moment and finally said, I guess Jesus couldn't come today. So he sent this poor boy in his place. With little further conversation, the little beggar boy was brought and set at the empty place at the dinner table where Jesus was to sit. Because when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And I'm not sure that we look at life that way. We can easily pass people by. We can dismiss them based upon what they drive, what they wear, their education. But that's not God. And so James says, listen, James 2.5, my beloved brethren. He's speaking to people who are loved, but we all need to be challenged. He says, listen up. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love them? Listen up, beloved brethren. The poor have been chosen by God to be wealthy heirs of the kingdom. Don't you treat them like they're nothing. Don't you use their pocketbook to make you partial. I was in Nepal in India in 2001, and I met a man named John Monger. And I know I'm going to see him in heaven. I'll recognize John because he has the biggest smile that never leaves his face. And John was uh, in a country called Bhutan, and he became a political refugee. He was kicked out of his country. He ended up in Nepal, And he started preaching the gospel on the streets of Nepal and was arrested and thrown in prison for 18 months simply because of street preaching. Now, get this he's kicked out of his country. Imagine, put yourself in his shoes for a second. Imagine you got kicked out of the United States, you ended up in Mexico, you're on the streets of Mexico preaching the gospel, and you get thrown into a Mexican prison for 18 months. How would your attitude be after that? John never stopped smiling. And I said, John, knowing your story, why do you smile so much? And he went, Pastor Michael, I found Jesus, and nothing's going to take this smile from my face. Man, I'll tell you, that's humbling. There, My smile can go away very easily. <laughs> How many of you have this in your vocabulary? I'm not amused. Have we become a little too serious? Maybe we need to lighten up. Maybe we need to see people as God sees them. But you have dishonored the poor man. Verse 6, is it not the rich who oppress you? Speaking of uh, economic exploitation and personally drag you into court. So let me just give you the backdrop for a second. Uh, It appears, and we'll see this later in chapter 5, that wealthy landowners were exploiting early Jewish Christians because there were classes of people and you were pretty much, there was a diminishing middle class so you're pretty much either rich or poor in this society and that's probably how you were going to stay. Wealthy landowners would hire workers, sometimes day laborers, and they would put them to work but sometimes they would hold back their pay. And what could you do if you're a day laborer trying to fight a wealthy landowner? And sometimes these cases ended up in a court Or sometimes the because the wealthy person had money and the poor man did not, he could turn it around on the poor man and exploit him in court and drag him into court on false charges, and the poor man had very little way to fight the rich man. And it may be, and this is my own conjecture, that the rich man that walked into that assembly and was treated so well while the poor man was treated shabbily may have been that poor man's boss who was exploiting him, or he may have been one of the wealthy landowners that was pulling these shenanigans on the church. And so James is saying, why would you celebrate that man and give him the best seat based upon his clothing and his jewelry when he is exploiting your brethren? Why would you ever do that, says James? You, you've made a decision based upon his dress, but his heart is an issue. In fact, Do they not, verse 7, James 2, blaspheme the fair or noble name by which you have been called? These individuals who were were being treated in this special way were not even Christians. They were blaspheming the name of Jesus and getting preferential treatment in the church. Think of it this way. A movie star goes into a major congregation that I will leave unnamed in our country, probably one of the biggest churches in the country, but this movie star has openly denied the faith. And I'm not talking about once, I'm talking about multiple times. Yet they walk into the church and they're treated as royalty when they in essence have blasphemed the name of Christ the, from their public platform. Now you tell me why were they treated that way? One reason, they're rich and famous. That's that's what this has become all about. And if we put it into a modern context, there you have it. They walk in, it's a bit of a parade, it's a show, they're on the front row, but not because they're a committed believer in Jesus Christ, not because they're a necessarily a hungry soul just wanting to hear the truth. Because if that were the case, of course. They'd have open arms. But they literally blaspheme Jesus in all other contexts, yet they are celebrated in the assembly at the expense of others who are overlooked because they don't have the same fame and they don't have the same fortune. Look, this is reality, folks. These folks were hurting the body, and yet they were being celebrated in the assembly. And James says in verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, the, the word royal there is basilicas, According to scripture, the scripture, you shall not love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. There is a royal law. It's called royal because it comes from the king of heaven, the king of glory. The king of heaven is given a royal law. The royal one, the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords says, I have a law. It's my royal law. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to love your neighbor, verse 8, as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. In Luke 10, there was a discussion with a lawyer, an expert in the law, about the essence of the law, and Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan. And remember that there were religious people who wouldn't help the man who was called taken by thieves and beat up and left for dead. They didn't want to touch him. They didn't want to deal with him. But it was a Samaritan who came to his rescue. And Jesus said, "'Which of the three were a neighbor to the man caught among thieves?' And they responded, "'The man who had pity on him, the man who had compassion. He was the neighbor.'" And then Jesus says, "'Go and do the same. "'Go and do likewise.'" The rabbis had a saying like this, go and do it. Go and do likewise, go and fulfill the law. This is the royal law, the royal law is love. Do you struggle with favoritism? We all probably do to a certain extent. Maybe it's maybe there's a hidden partiality in all of our hearts that we need to go before the Lord and say, "Lord, is this me?" Some of you who are younger, you can see it, you can see it at school, can't you? There's that kid Who's dismissed? He's put into the corner because he looks different, or he he doesn't he doesn't you know hang with the cool kids, and he's 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 beaten up every day, whether physically or verbally or ostracized. He feels like he's nothing, and you see it. And my question for you is: Will you do something about it? I have a lot my heart and I'll tell you why because on the playground I'll confess this to you I was a bully Um, I was so insecure about all the other things going on in my life I let that come out on the playground and instead of coming to people's rescue I stayed in my own little cool world because I was more concerned about being cool than I was about that person And our world is, that's not just on the playground, you guys. That's everywhere. Social classes, exploitation, people who look down their noses at others. And James says, that's not it, man. If you're a Christian and you show partiality, verse 9, this is hard to take, but here's our Bible. You're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles, what's your Bible say? In one. Literally, it doesn't say, in the original it just says in one or one point. The translators add that. But if you stumble in one, you have become what? Guilty of all. Now, the law goes from 613 commandments codified to 10 and summarized in two. 613 commandments and subcommandments. If you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, what's it about? Well, if a person has land and somebody does this to them or they kill their animal or if it's on purpose or accident, it's all about personal injury laws and what people do to one another. And, And sometimes it's some hard reading. But the essence of it is all this. And if you took the 613 and took it down to the 10, the essence of it is this. You will not... Break any of the commandments if you love your neighbor and you love God. You won't. Would you commit adultery with your neighbor's wife if you loved your neighbor? No. Would you steal their stuff? No. Would you lie about them? Would you covet? See, the law, when it goes from 6.13 to two to 10 and then to 2, is summarized, and this is the whole law. Love God with all you are and love what your neighbor as yourself if you do those two things you have fulfilled the law here's the problem though i don't sometimes i do but many times i don't sometimes i look back at a day and maybe you could relate to this and Maybe you had a bunch of pity parties and maybe you had some outbursts of anger and you look back at the day and you you go, man, I was a rascal today. What is going on? And it may be something like this. You know, I didn't even pray first thing in the morning. That may have been where it all started. (laughs) I was so busy to get on with my day because I have places to go and people to see and things to do and And my whole day unraveled because it wasn't hemmed in prayer. anybody else? Yeah. Was that this morning for you? Yeah. On the way to church? (laughs) Walked in here? Ain't going to love nobody today. God knew you'd be here. Every sin... Every sin, please hear what I'm about to say, is a failure to love God and my neighbor. Every sin. I don't think there's one that doesn't fall into that category. That's what sin is. It's to miss the mark. Torah, law in Hebrew means to hit the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. We miss it all the time. What do we do? The Bible says because the law is an inseparable unit, if you break one of them, you've broken them all because the essence of them all is love. And if you don't love even one time, you've broken the whole essence of the law. That's why verse 11 says, he who said, and God said this, and the law is an extension of God. So when you break the law, you're sinning against God. It's hard to take, but this is it. It says don't commit adultery, don't murder, if you do not commit adultery, so you say, and sometimes you talk to people and they say, Well, <laughs> have you ever done this before? You, you say, You're trying to use the law to get to the gospel, Ray Comfort style. And you say, Okay, have you ever lied? Yeah. Have you ever lusted? Yeah. But I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> and there you are as a little evangelist. And the next line is, But I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Well, you've already broken a few of them. I'm sure you've broken all 10, sir. Here's the problem. If you break the law, if you've lied, if you've lusted, if you've coveted, if you've hated someone in your heart, you've broken the whole law. And because God is such an exacting judge, if you stand before God and He judges you just by the top 10, how are you going to do on the day of judgment? I think we'd all admit, I'm in trouble. And so the judge of all the earth would say, if you broke one of them, you've transgressed my law. So what do we do? Well, we have an answer. And this is why we are to preach law to the proud and grace to the humble. If I meet someone and I start sharing the gospel with them and they say something like this, oh, I don't even know if God could ever forgive me for what I've done, then I'm going right to the cross and I'm going to preach the love of God. But if someone says to me, you know what? I don't really think I need that. I, I'm a pre- How many of you have heard this? I'm a pretty good person. I, this is what we call good person syndrome. I'm a pretty good person. I, I haven't been that bad. I haven't killed anybody yet. <laughs> yet, keyword yet. And you say to them, well, have you ever lied? Yeah, but they were mostly white lies. Is that different? Uh, Have you ever lusted for someone who's not your spouse? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? The Lord who gave you life, holds your very breath in his hands? You know, the law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. And the good news is the lawgiver is the Lord of glory. And the lawgiver came down to the earth to save you because he knew you couldn't fulfill his law. And he was nailed to that cross to satisfy He fulfilled the law in his perfect life, and then in his sacrificial death, he paid your ransom. This is why you need Jesus. You are not going to make it on your good works. You can't do enough, because if you failed in one part of the law, you've broken all of it, because you didn't love as God would have you to. So James, addressing Christian's final two verses, says, so, brethren, twelve speak and act; those are present uh, tense verbs. As those who will be judged by what the law of liberty. Now, in verse uh, twenty-five, or yeah, twenty-five, the word of God is called the law of liberty, or the law is called the law of liberty. In verse eight of chapter two, it's called the royal law, and here. It's called the law of liberty again, because when you love, you are free. When you truly start to love the way God has called you to love, you will never be more free than when you do it. And so James says, I want you to speak, present tense, keep on speaking, keep on acting, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, which is what? The law of love. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be before the white throne. Why? Because your sin was paid for in full at the cross. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But you are going to stand before Abima. It's an elevated platform by which a judge gives rewards. And the judge of all the earth is going to say, Michael, how well did you love? How well did you love your wife? I told you to love her as I love the church. I told you to love your neighbor as yourself. How well did you do with that? I wanted you to love me with everything you are because I knew that in union with me is where you would find life and you would be free. How'd you do with that? Now, if some of you are gulping right now and going, oh, I have good news, you're still alive. Say, I am? Yeah, yeah, you are. Have somebody pinch you. It's not a dream you still have a chance to change. And I will tell you, I can't produce this. God is going to have to produce it in me. For judgment, verse 13, ending on a sober note, will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 7 for they shall receive mercy. What do we do in the light of this reality? I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. We are to see that Christ fulfilled the law for you and me. Jesus at the cross is God's love on display. But just because I'm saved by grace doesn't mean that grace doesn't have implications for my life. And now that I'm saved, God has a call for me and for you. If you're willing to listen and obey, here it is. Go out this week and speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of love. If you simplified your life to that, how easy would your week ahead be? Because we, so, we get so, uh, you know, wound up in all these, these variables, and there's a lot of them out there. But what if you just simplified your week this week and just said, Lord, I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to work on that love relationship with you I'm going to ask you to love people through me because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. So love people through me today because I know that one day I'm going to stand before you. Would you bow your heads and hearts? One day I know I'm going to stand before you, Lord. And the one thing you're going to say to me as a saved believer is, Michael, how well did you love And you're not even going to really ask me that question because you already know, Lord. And I think I can rest in this. You're going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. If we love well, we will hear that. Well done. And Lord, we all have work to do. We confess it. But we're so grateful for your love. We love because you first loved us. And we're a community that has experienced the love of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, the the preeminent fruit is love. Oh, Lord, let it flow. And forgive us, forgive me for the many times that I've failed, the many times that I've not defaulted to love, the many times when I could have taken that extra moment maybe said that extra prayer or just stepped into somebody's crisis, but it's easier to run sometimes. It's easier to be partial. But Lord, give us your heart in fresh and deep ways this week. If you're not a Christian, then sadly you're going to be judged by the Ten Commandments. And I'm sure you can see that if you've broken one of them, you've broken them all. You need Jesus. Jesus. Maybe you've been putting it off. Maybe you've been thinking, ah, maybe God will grade on a curve. Or maybe my good works will outweigh my bad works. It's just not going to happen. But there's one who loved you so deeply. He took your pain, your punishment, and shame at the cross. And if you're ready to settle it with him, if you're ready to receive his payment for your sin, you need to, my brother, my sister, because if you don't, You're going to stand before God, and he's going to judge you by the law. But that law was nailed to the cross with Jesus. So with your head and heart bowed, with everybody's eyes closed, if you have not met Jesus, I'm going to ask you right now to do something bold, but nobody's going to be staring at you. Would you raise up your hand if you don't know Jesus? And I'm going to pray for you. Lift up your hand if you want to meet him for the first time today. Don't be ashamed of him. He was not ashamed of you there's anybody in here, first time, you're ready to give your life to Jesus. Maybe some of you want to rededicate your life. That's always open to you. doesn't have to happen in a church building. It can happen anywhere. Oh, Lord God, thank you for those who are reaching up. Thank you that you are so... Wonderful to reach down to us right where we are. Thank you that you're so patient. You're full of loving kindness. Your love is better than life. Oh, Lord, would you saturate this congregation with that love this week? And where we have maybe been lacking, would you fill in those gaps? Would you just so dominate our lives that it just flows out of us? It's not something we have to force. It's just something that a yielded life produces. And I pray that you would bless each one with that fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.